Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson coming to us, being recorded from her bed, which is which is, I think, where we should <laughs> it's actually always the record. guest bed. But it's I, actually I, the guest bed. Pregnant, pregnant uh, ladies who are eight months pregnant should always record from a recumbent position. I dig it. I'm. I was gonna say I'm like on my back foot for this. Let's see what the criticism is like because uh, I took a Xanax like 20 minutes ago in preparation for my dental surgery. So this should be a fun one. Well, I think you on. Uh, one Xanax is like being a type A instead of just a type A plus. So it's, I think it's like <laughs> being a normal person. <laughs> well, let's not get carried away. Two Xanax, maybe normal, but uh, two I, Xanax, I, I'd be passed out. I have, I have no doubt that you will uh, bring the same gimlet eye and incisiveness. To we'll this, see. We'll see. No matter what. Fortunately, we did get a lot of new topics, subjects this morning, starting with. We got a new, several new front page items. The first is Simone Biles is Times Athlete of the Year. And Chris, we talked about this earlier about, you know, there's nothing wrong with what uh, these guys did, which is to say, I'm having uh, some mental health issues. I got to step back. Uh, at the same time, uh, that is now being equated with greatness, athletic greatness, uh, which I take issue with. I have no judgment for what Simone Biles did. I think it's good she needed to do it. At the same time, I'm not really sure that makes her athlete of the year. So here's the quote that I love from the Time article, uh, which we will put in the show notes. It, it is, quote, an athlete's clout is increasingly measured in much more than wins and losses. If 2020 showcased the power of athletes as activists after the murder of George Floyd, this year demonstrated how athletes are uniquely positioned to propel mental health to the forefront of a broader cultural conversation. I mean, why I find this so hilarious is the only reason anyone cares about Simone Biles is because she won. Like, every single gymnastics competition. So that gives her some standing to talk about this. I'm not sure this uh, really adds to her greatness. When I say that I hold Time Magazine in, in a place of contempt, I, I say it with, with sincerity and regret. The Time Magazine Man of the Year, which became the Time Magazine Person of the Year, which became the Time Magazine who cares? Let's have 45 categories and whatever. This is like, um, it's a thing that a lot of news organizations do. CNN has its heroes. The Fox News has the Patriot Awards. It's just, it's a way to get famous people on your cover or in your coverage. And, you know, I guess my, my thing with Time is, I don't know what Time Magazine is anymore. I don't know what the purpose of Time Magazine is. I think, you know, Newsweek is trying to sort of come back and I want to give Newsweek some some kudos that after really hitting rock bottom as a publication, Newsweek seems to be trying to instill some editorial standards. 
I don't is time. Well, magazine, what makes you say that? I mean, they, they're doing op eds, but I don't see any reporting. Well, I'm saying some. Did standard, I miss it? Some sta- there's there seems to be some standard. There was a period of time where it looked like Newsweek was just only clickbait and it was just all like basically an upworthy for politics. But it seems like they're getting some different voices. No, in. No, it's an opinion magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which opinion journalism is journalism and you and there can be standards and all that stuff. I just mentioned Newsweek as an aside. I have no idea what the purpose of Time Magazine is. I do not know why it exists. I do not know what it is for. And I think this having the concept of Time believing that it is a, a powerful enough voice to deem a human being the athlete of the year and then choosing an athlete. I mean, it's their right to choose an athlete who they feel was defined by their failure. In this. It's our right to think it's stupid. <laughs> I mean, the old, in the old days when it mattered who Time Magazine's person of the year was, it could be a person who was a bad person, right? I believe. Totally. Stalin Impact. and Hitler. Yeah, Stalin and Hitler both were. So I guess you could make an argument that Simone Biles was the athlete of the year in the sense that she was the most discussed and they thought it would get the most clicks. Chris. I love our next item because it's a very me item, but mm-hmm. in this case, you raised even I would not crap on somebody's obituary. So, so I, over to you, Mr. Shirewall. Me, me sharing something with you that I know that you will find interest in. So it's, it's still about me. This was actually brought to my attention by one of our loyal listeners, and it was the obituary for Fred Hyatt. And before we talk about this, you know, Fred Hyatt ran a good editorial, the Washington Post even as its overall standards seemed to slip, Fred Hyatt kept a really good editorial page and there was a diversity of voices. They didn't fall into some of the traps that the New York Times fell into. And I think Fred Hyatt, we can look back on Fred Hyatt's career as an impressive one. Do you? For those for whom Fred Hyatt is not a household name, Fred Hyatt, who was only 66, died. Suddenly he was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post. I, I'm, a, I'm not the biggest fan of the Post editorial page, but I do agree that uh, they haven't fallen prey to yeah. the stuff that's eaten the New York Times alive. And I had the privilege of meeting Fred, uh, must have been six weeks ago. I mean, not that long ago in October, I think, or early November. And um, just super sad. One of the one of the challenges of an editorial. So an editorial page has a point of view. The Wall Street Journal has a point of view. The editorial page, the New York Times has a point of view, da, 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 da. That's so acknowledging that, then how do you offer a, a diversity of viewpoints? And one of the keys is to take seriously and sincerely the points of view of people with whom you might disagree and not offer cheap shots. And by the way, the Post does have a problem with uh, Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot. Their ranks of conservative writers have thinned considerably, though the New York Times now has David Brooks, who announced in a very compelling, interesting piece in The Atlantic that he is no longer a Republican and no longer thinks of himself as a conservative. Breaking news, everyone. Well, it's a, it's an interesting piece, and and I recommend it to everybody. It's it's certainly thoughtful. So here's Hyatt's obituary in the Post, the lead of Hyatt's obituary. Fred Hyatt, a one-time foreign correspondent who in 2000 became the Washington Post editorial page editor and greatly expanded the global reach of the newspaper's opinion writers in the era of 9-11, the election of Barack Obama, and the destabilizing presidency of Donald Trump died December 6th at a hospital in New York City. Now, look. The idea that in an editorial, Donald Trump is a rotten, rotten person and is certainly the worst president of my lifetime, is a very bad man. He is a bad man. 
but that in your own obituary, in your own editorial writer's obituary, you have to throw an elbow as you go by to wrap it up. Like just just for the record, in case you think that the Washington Post doesn't hate Donald Trump, just to get it on the record, we think he's a duty head. And putting that in the lead of somebody's uh, obituary says uh, says bad things. Here, here. I don't have a different opinion. Oh, you want to talk about L'Affaire de Cuomo? Oh, I was like, on to our next douche. Um, oh, man. Cuomo. I was like, we had to talk about it because it happened last Saturday. Well, we cut, we cut, didn't we? We covered it last week, but yeah. he is now, he's now not suspended indefinitely, but fired. Feel more. I, there were a lot of things I found funny about this, which CNN said it retained the white shoe law firm of Cravath to further investigate this stuff. And then it was like within 24 hours of retaining that law firm, they had found, you know, even more than we already knew as if what we already knew wasn't a fireable offense. And they uh, cut him loose. But I, I found it funny. It was like, so it, Cravath in 24 hours told you more than what the New York Attorney General's like months long report on this told well, you. Don't, I, don't that's you interesting. Don't you suppose that the retention of that law firm was designed to uh, insulate CNN from Cuomo's already oh, for sure. Lawsuit? It was a total pretext. Yeah. Like, oh, just when the because when Cuomo I, he's is he already suing? But he's he's retained he's retained his own lawyer and he's going right. to sue. So right. this, this is saying, like, we did our due diligence. Not only did the attorney general of New York, but our internal investigation so that they can rebut his lawsuit. Uh, I love it. it. The thing that jumped out at me and Harper Collins has now dropped his book. So he's taken a financial hit. I mean, he's still, you know, richer than all of us and most of the people we know. But um, did- uh, what I loved is. In none of this has he come out and said, I apologize for embarrassing my colleagues at the network or for adversely affecting the reputation of my employer, who was apparently paying him six million dollars a year. Instead, so he's like, I'm going to sue you for the 18 million. It's it's amazing. But the, but this is this is a business really driven by litigation and it's so often driven by litigation. What do you and, mean by that? So if Cuomo if Cuomo said the right thing, if he said the human thing, which was, yeah, I got out over my skis. I really messed up here. I'm sorry. I let everybody down. He can't sue. Right. They, I think we need to dub this the Felicia Somnes, this, this, the Somnes effect, where fear of litigation or the presence of litigation causes people in journalistic enterprises to act like uh, total morons. And they're worried about getting sued or they're worried about retaining their rights for lawsuit so they don't do the right and normal things. And I think Cuomo's failure to act like a human being here is probably, well, whether it is inspired by or he ha- or rationalized by, probably more like rationalized by, my lawyer tells me I have to be a bad person because uh, it will it will advantage me in my effort to sue the network for eighteen million dollars. It's funny because I, I feel like lawyers' advice is either that like be a terrible person or it's like roll over and just take it. I mean, I feel like all the advice we get from lawyers is just to you know bend over basically. Well, when you let the human resources look. I have watched in my career on multiple occasions. So human resources and legal are important. And I say this 
certainly to the to the human resources teams. He's about to throw major shade. I can I, tell. I say this to human resources and legal teams here at the American Enterprise Institute, talent development, I should say, and legal and at the dispatch and everywhere. It's all important work, but it is not the purpose of a journalistic enterprise. And lawyers and HR people are designed to tell you how they're, the, the broad category is risk management. And risk managers are going to say, let's manage the risk to as close to zero as possible. I was going to say, the answer is always no. And journalism requires risk taking. Good journalism requires risk taking. And that's where you got to have good leaders who say, I hear you. I understand that there are risks associated here. I am on notice and I am okay with that. And here we go. What do we have next here? Oh, the cute, just a oh. little note on a, on a really interesting LA Times piece about the media, the news in, and entertainment nexus with the QAnon phenomenon, QAnon phenomenon. And it's at the LA Times. We'll put it in the show notes. It's very interesting about how much of QAnon came out of Hollywood and then how it sort of threw right-wing news outlets reinfected Hollywood. We saw the story about Sylvester Stallone. Wait, wait, was the shaman an aspiring actor? <laughs> well, I assume <laughs> you saw the, the woman, the January 6th woman. He was in costume. You, you saw the January 6th woman who posted her reality show uh, uh, tryout, her demo tape uh, to TikTok. So anyway, the but I just I think it's, did you it's, see the guy who posted pictures of himself? It's like everyone storming the Capitol and he's standing out there wearing a shirt that's like you know freedom, I love freedom, yeah, and yeah, drinking yeah. a Coors Light. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to do like a beacon guide to properly storming the Capitol, which would just feature <laughs> this guy. It's like just stand stand and drink a beer. The Q and the 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 prep the the Q and meets the preppy handbook. I like it. Uh, totally. Oh. So I saw this this morning and got all worked up about it. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, bad, bad start, <laughs> right? Okay, Politico has a piece on Biden's foreign policy. Headline, old, for, old foes thwart Biden's foreign policy pivot. And in the piece, they say the following. Privately, White House aides have portrayed 2021 as a rebuilding year, a moment to repair the damage caused by former President Donald Trump's agenda, which prioritized competition with allies and often turned a blind eye to power grabs by autocrats. Um, I mean, I'm just glad we haven't seen any power grabs by autocrats in the Biden presidency with like Russia amassing troops on the Ukraine border, China uh, taking an aggressive uh, posture in the Taiwan Strait and basically telling the Biden uh, administration in its first meeting to go, you know what, themselves. And there's absolutely no context that, like, this is the White House spin. In reality, these things have happened on their watch, too. Well, it might not actually have been all about Trump. Well, so Trump had a... A, a tough stance against Russia as an administrative policy, but a weak vassalage stance with Putin personally. He he couldn't personally do the tough talk bluster stuff, uh, but his administration and this was people because of who was available to populate his administration were people who were going to be hawkish or more hardline. But I think about this. If Donald Trump had said, here's what Joe Biden said about the possibility of sending U.S. troops to the Ukraine if Russia invades. I'm not, I'm sorry, not the Ukraine, Ukraine. That is not on the table, he said, 
We have a moral obligation and a legal obligation to our NATO allies if they were to uh, attack under Article 5. That's a sacred obligation. Uh, that obligation does not extend to you and and goes on from there. If Donald Trump had preemptively ruled out the possibility of U.S. military intervention, uh, if Russia starts invading European nations, how would that have been perceived? I mean, it isn't like the first rule of diplomacy is not to right. broadcast to your foes what's on and off the table. Like you right. want to keep them a little nervous. And I didn't even mention Iran, Iran and all of this. And certainly we can debate whether the yeah. Biden administration's more dovish posture toward Iran has invited power grabs by autocrats. But it's not like the the idea that we should take this statement at, at face value is absurd. And so much of what we see in in the media today. So much so much of what we see in the coverage of foreign policy is simply a continuation of the personalized personification personifies coverage of that most political coverage in Washington, D.C. comes down to the coverage of individual personalities and very often just the person of the president, as opposed to looking at things in a uh, more complete way. This was also not to pick on Politico today, but uh, but the other item, that cut, <laughs> but 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 the other item that caught my eye was the headline. Another eye-popping inflation reading is ahead. Next year could look very different. And it said that the subhead is the prices felt most acutely by voters could be telling a better story for Democrats heading into the midterms. I love this because this is coming from the same people who told us for months that inflation was transitory. People were too panicked about it. And now it's like, well, it's really bad, but it'll be gone by next year. So, you know, no credibility, uh, in my opinion, to say I, this. I, I do think Republicans should read that article because they have embraced a storyline for 2022 that may not hold up. Uh, the, the concern that they should have is that Biden's problems are peaking too soon. There's a long way to go till the election. And if people are really fed up with prices, right, they could just be if get I put it this way. Normally, if you say gas is three dollars a gallon, people say that's crazy. But if gas was four dollars a gallon, then they right. say maybe not so bad. So I, I do think I, I, I agree with you that the long resistance to acknowledging the uh, increase in consumer prices makes these such assertions less credible. But I do think Republicans should, this is still would still be a useful piece for Republicans to read. The other thing I find so funny about it is, um, sorry, I'm having a mental, it's, this is the Xanax talking. The Zan, we're hitting uh, the Zanny bars kicking in. Yeah. Here it comes. <laughs> Politico <laughs> on Biden foreign policy. By the uh, end, you're just going to be like, you know what? The media is pretty cool. I like yeah, stuff. Uh, I totally. like you. Yeah. There were so many good stories this week. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> How to pick uh, your favorite item. The other thing that crossed my mind on this is if past performance is a predictor of future performance, this may not happen, given that the Biden administration has downplayed the threat of inflation and now is reluctantly turning its attention to it. But they have in the White House a gaggle of left wing economists. And I think that there is just like there's a foreign policy consensus and the policies often don't change all that much between Republicans and Democrats. There's an economic consensus, too. That doesn't change that much, regardless of which party is in the White House. The members of like the centrist Democrats, these are not the people running 
Biden's economic policy. And they've been wrong every step of the way in their predictions about inflation. So that seems like important context to note uh, when talking about how um, actually things are going to get better. Here's an even more important context to put in. They have almost no control over what happens. They're going to the reappointed Jerome Powell. have, Have they made it official yet? But anyway, Jerome Powell will stay on at the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve has been a massive driver of inflation. Massive, massive, massive driver of inflation uh, for stimulative purposes. Outside of the Federal Reserve, the supply chain problems and the, the, the inflationary problems will be resolved by people who are not within this zip code. Well, and, well on the Fed, Biden just renominated the guy who's been right. running the Fed. Jerome so that's Powell, the one. So, the, yeah. the one that, now, Powell does promise. We're, we're, we're edging dangerously close to talking about actual issues, but Powell does. I was going to, I thought you were going to say we're edging dangerously close to talking about things we know nothing about, but that could just be like the subtitle of our podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I've mentioned it before. My favorite uh, cartoon about journalism, I believe it was in the New Yorker. There's a bunch of reporters standing around in a newsroom. There's a dartboard that's cut into slivers. It says economics, history, uh, race relations. And he's got a dart in his hand and he says, what will I be an expert on? today. But uh, Joe Biden will not determine the health of the economy and the state of inflation. He's already taken the one action, which is on the Federal Reserve. It's not about him, but everybody in Washington thinks everything is about them. All you, Chris, on this next one. Well, the we've talked before about Donald Trump's new media company, uh, which is being funded through a shell game, I guess is how you'd call it, a legal shell game where you can raise money uh, for a startup uh, with through a shell company and then and then acquire the company. We have two pieces of news on that. One is uh, that they say they've raised a billion dollars from investors, but they do not. They they unusually or out of uh, out of the norm for this have not said who those investors are. And number two, Devin Nunes, one of the weirdest members of Congress, has uh, is going to retire from his seat in California so that he can run the Trump media company. Now, what do we think about Devin Nunes as media mogul, and will he be a mogul of anything? Well, a couple things. The first is, it is interesting that Nunes, who was, if Republicans retake the House majority, which they're expected to do, that Nunes was slated to be the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and instead chose to go run this Trump social media company. You know, that's an interesting choice. I just don't quite see what background would prepare him for this job? Well, uh, certainly as much background as would running the Ways and Means Committee. I think for Nunes, McCarthy is going to have a problem, which is the, the gigs that people want are gigs that put them on television and let them hold hearings, right? They want judiciary. They want uh, oversight. Uh, intelligence gives them secret squirrel stuff. That's what Nunes did before. Ways and Means is a is a working position, right? You actually have to produce spending legislation. Devin Nunes has wanted to be a TV, like a lot of these people in both parties. Jonah, the Jonah Goldberg calls it a parliament of pundits. A lot of these people want to be in the media biz, right? Matt Gates with the famous line, what did he say? Uh, if I'm not on TV, I'm not legislating. And you're like, actually, <laughs> you've you've gotten that exactly wrong. Well, in the Trump era, that's kind of that was kind of true. Well, he wasn't legislating anyway. So 
finding workhorses to still do the job that, you know, guys like Kevin Brady and others who were serious, sober-sided Republicans used to do. Devin Nunes would much rather be on TV and in the media business and and doing that stuff, I think, than uh, doing the, the boring work of, of the power of the purse in Congress. Uh, can I just say one thing in defense of Devin Nunes? Sure. Which is, I was skeptical on all this Russiagate stuff when he put out this memo saying this is actually what happened and it was Nunes v. Schiff and uh, he was totally vindicated on that. So uh, it doesn't have all that much to do with his ability to run a social media company, but totally, totally vindicated is not a phrase that I would use, but certainly he was because I I don't have the brief in front of me right now in terms of every claim that he made. But at the very least, so you should also say it's not a it's not a phrase you would not use because you just don't know yet. It's unlikely that I would. It's unlikely <laughs> that I would ever use the phrase totally vindicated to describe Devin Nunes. His behavior was so weird and his attacks were so overbroad or they seemed overbroad. Um, I am much more I was much more sympathetic to Trey Gowdy and others who were open to asking questions about the way that the law enforcement community misbehaved than I was Devin Nunes, who basically went to war with the Justice Department every day and was banging his pots and pans around. Okay, let's do this for next week. I'm going to say totally vindicated. You're going to say. Oh, I don't want to talk about Devin Nunes two weeks in a row. Let's let's review the document and come back. If you want if you want to come back to make your case for why Devin Nunes is totally vindicated. Okay, and then you'll be like, well, I didn't read the document, so I can't. No, I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now that I will not read the documents. But if you bring a convincing case, (laughs) that Devin Nunes was totally vindicated. I'm ready. Go for it. I'm ready. You're up next, too. Uh, well, well, I actually, never read th- this. this connects. Yeah, this connects very closely, I think, to the Trump yes, social exactly. media company, which is that BuzzFeed went public this yeah. week and the shares proceeded to tank. And I do think it underscores how hard it is to actually build one of these things that is profitable over the long term, has real value, you know, is is a lucrative business. And I don't think that really anybody has found the formula like what i found so interesting about if buzzfeed was like the trendy outlet of its day now that's kind of axios and axios's proposition is to make money selling their back-end software to corporations it has nothing to do with news and so i think the tanking of these shares is as we're recording this on thursday morning uh the shares are down again and are it's not no rebound Yeah, and I think it does underscore the financial difficulties of the news media and the continued struggle to find a a way to make this an actual you know business, meaning we know one that doesn't lose money. Well, I, I yes, 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 and yes, and the idea of BuzzFeed or Axios or whatever that you're going to flip it. So, so what a lot of these folks have wanted is what Politico got. Right, you build up a book of business. And then you engage in a private sale, make your profit and get out. And I assume that's what Axios wants to do. I don't know. For but, sure. And then Politico's profit is in its subscription services that that, that people right. pay a lot of money for, not what you see on the front page, which I think do, also demonstrates like people are not paying for to read the major news of the day. And the people, if, if your wealth 
is strongly correlated, connected to the value of your stock price. And your stock price is going to be based on how many clicks you're getting. What are you going to do? Click, click, bait, bait, click, bait, click. I say click, you say bait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'll never be participating in that cheer. Let's see. Should we do, uh, should we yeah, do Dobbs? Do it. Okay. So lots of coverage of the Supreme Court hearing on abortion. And I found interesting in it, there was a lot of focus on Brett Kavanaugh, even though there are six conservative Supreme Court justices. And I read the coverage as it wasn't too, like didn't take a genius to figure out what the message was here, which was if Kavanaugh votes to overturn Roe, he will be portrayed as somebody who misled the Senate in his confirmation hearings. So the Washington Post does a piece with the headline, Kavanaugh, who told Senate Roe v. Wade was settled as precedent, signals openness to overturning abortion decision. And then in the piece, well, let me get to that in a second. The The idea that Roe v. Wade is settled as precedent is that is a tautological statement. That is a fact. It right. is settled precedent. It says nothing about his willingness to overturn settled precedent or not. So the, the way that the Post substantiates this story is to say Kavanaugh's statements on Wednesday differed, if not in substance, then certainly in tone yes, from the, the impression the, he left for some in 2018 during his Senate confirmation process. Chris, I mean, news to me that a judicial nominee would ever be more diplomatic in the Senate confirmation process than they are once they are confirmed to the federal bench. I mean, have you ever heard of this happening? Just shocking. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that they said one thing to that a person would say one thing to get a job and then act differently uh, once in that position. And also, let me just generally be a brown cloud hovering over the whole concept of trying to suss out opinions based on demeanor of justices during questioning. Sometimes justices are doing hard questions so that they feel that they've tested their side of the argument and found it desirable. Sometimes they're doing tough questions because they actually disagree. It's dumb. Don't do it. Wait for the decision. I have, um, can I make a late ad? And it's just one paragraph that I want to share uh, because it delights me and it's only the, because only because of the Xanax, Chris, I'm very relaxed about your late ads. I, I, go I, go I, for I, it. I, so uh, the next uh, week, this won't stand. Uh, beep bleep. <laughs> uh, the surgeon. So uh, headline Surgeon General warns of youth mental health crisis. And, <laughs> and in this, uh, the nation's top physician, who isn't really the nation's top physician, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy in a 53 oh my page God, news to Fauci. Yeah. In a 53 page report, uh, noting that the pandemic has intensified mental health issues that were already <laughs> widespread by the spring of 2020. So I want to read this graph from The New York Times coverage. Young people are bombarded with messages through the media and popular culture that erode their sense of self-worth, telling them that they are not good looking enough, popular enough, smart enough or rich <laughs> enough. Dr. Murphy wrote in the report that comes as progress on legitimate and distressing issues like climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, and the opioid epidemic and gun violence feels too slow. So I just Oh my got, God, it is just so hard to be alive today. I got to give the New York Times credit 
for having the cojones to publish this article in this way. Be like, I wonder why teens feel so depressed about issues like climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, the opioid (laughs) epidemic and gun violence, given that that newspaper every day on those issues is like it's bad and worse is coming. You're like, but I think things have gotten better in some areas on these things. No, everything is worse. All no, the, the Smithsonian time. is going to be right. underwater. Fonzie's jacket years. Will, be, will be swept out into the polar ice flows. And it's like, really, New York Times, you think that that's mm-hmm. number one, boo in general to the Surgeon General freelancing as a pop psychiatrist. To I the also like, teams. they're like, well, the fact that they're seeing skinny, hot people on TikTok and Instagram all day. It just exacerbates the stress they already feel Still because from climate change. the Smithsonian is right. going under and their summer camp experience has been their you know, summer, impacted. Their, their, their lacking summer camp experience <laughs> uh, has them depressed to begin with. And then it only gets worse oh, so when good. they see hot people in the news. Okay. Oh, here's uh, the, here, here we go. Let's let's open on this for our final item on the front page. Let's open with the sound. Let's hear what Fox and Friends yes, please. had to say about the Christmas in Fuego. This is Ainsley Earhart, the Fox and Friends uh, co-host. It's a, it's a tree that unites us, that brings us together. It's about the Christmas spirit. It is about the holiday season. Uh, it's it, about Jesus. It's about Hanukkah. It is about everything that we stand for as a country. Freedom and being able to, to worship the way that you want to worship. It makes me so mad. Like, Chris, so, congratulations, I mean, Eliana. Hanukkah I never is knew. Christmas too. Why have I? Too. I have never owned a Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> I might have to go out and get one for my end of Hanukkah celebration. Police have arrested Craig Tamanaha, Tamanaha, uh, aged forty-nine, and charged him with seven counts, including criminal mischief, reckless endangerment, and arson for torching the Fox News Christmas tree. And to listen to, and look, first of all, (laughs) it shouldn't need to be said, but it should be said. Destruction of property and burning people's stuff is wrong, bad, and evil. Uh, Whoa, whoa, whoa. But like, I'm sure the protests on Fox are mostly peaceful. This was like an outlier. <laughs> Most of the protests against Fox are totally placid. Well, the cap- the January 6th uh, riots were, what were the January 6th riots? But just the frustrated expression of a few people. Nonetheless. Was by Antifa. But nonetheless. My, my point here is this Christmas tree is terrible, uh, comma, but it's also perfect for cable news and social media because everybody who hates Fox can make, I saw somebody had made, a Yule log movie so that if you wanted to have it up on your monitor instead of the crackling Yule log, uh, you could have the burning Christmas tree with the sounds of crackling. (laughs) So if you hate Fox, it's perfect. You're happy that their Christmas tree was burned. And if you are part of the Fox Nation, uh, this is a moment where you have been uh, hit by- It's not just the war on Christmas. It's the war on MAGA. Exactly. It's the war on Christmas has reached its militant phase and it's it's perfect. Is it time for obsessions? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, Okay, okay. We now come to our obsessions of the week. These are the stories that we could not get out of our heads. I mean, Chris, I I like agree with the sentiments expressed in your obsession, but I I was able to get it out of my head. But you tell us why you couldn't. Uh, so Jack Schaefer, who, uh, this is a very Politico-y, uh, episode Yeah, our today. pal Jack Schaefer. Oh, this is good. We're balancing out the criticism we gave up top. 
So Schaefer, Jack, we love you. We hope you're a listener. So Jack Schaefer is a longstanding critic of cable news. And I would say, I'll put it this way. Uh, one of the messages that he had in the past that was bad, that Democrats over consumed was who cares about Fox News? They're all old whiteies and they're going to be dead soon. And not that many people watch anyway. And I think he underappreciated I think Democrats should go on Fox News. Democrats should fight to go on Fox. They should they should demand basically to get on there and, and share their point of view and call Fox out when they don't. But anyway, Schaefer. Instead, is, we have Democrats, i.e. Anthony Fauci, just boycotting Fox. You got the Anyhow, fa- you got the Fauci itch today. You got the but anyway, the 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 title of the piece is time to pull the plug on cable news. And it's loaded with statistics information. It's got all of it's it's got it's got a lot of goodies in it. So he's here's his kicker. Bother me no more about what incendiary thing Tucker Carlson said last night. Banished from my ear fall any future mention of Laura Logan. And whatever the outcome of Chris Cuomo's suspension, now we know, promise me that you'll never speak his name to me again. I'm not swearing off cable or vowing never to write about it again. My job description won't allow that. But I'm donning a special set of blinders starting today to shield me from cable's deep foolishness. And I got to say, I, you know, for doing book research, Samantha and I, Samantha Goldstein, shout out, and I are, are having to consume some cable news in volumes that I have not in a long, long time. It's not great out there, right? The, the content is not great, but I think understanding cable news, here's the thing, understanding cable news for what it is, which is a product made for addicted, highly engaged partisans and no one else, right? There's nobody else out there. Now, you should try to I think Democrats should try to talk to Fox viewers. I think Republicans should try to talk to CNN viewers. I think that's good. Right. I think the outreach, if you can find the right fair, you find the fairer space in which to do it. And both networks have those things that you could do. But the idea of treating cable news like the rest of news would be like treating Breitbart putting Breitbart in the same category as the New York Times, not in terms of quality, but like we know who all of Breitbart's read. And the, while the New York Times has mostly liberal readers or mostly Democratic leader, readers, they have some Republicans, they have conservatives. It's a, it's a more of a mainstream space. Cable news is niche. And we have to know we have to know that's true. It's interesting. I mean, I'm a political junkie. I do politics for a living and I really don't watch cable news, which I think tells you like how important it is. Uh, right. Of course, going by what I read and watch equals important and what I don't equals not important. But it's certainly not a necessity to like work in politics and do politics. Yes. And not anymore. That's for sure. At all. My obsession. And this actually was my obsession. I was obsessing about it all week was the New York Times coverage of the withdrawal of Biden's nominee to regulate banks from uh, from contention. The comptroller of the currency. Yes. I feel feel like nobody knows what the comptroller of the currency is, but people can understand like this is the person who would regulate banks. So they tell us in a tweet, essentially she is a socialist. She happens to have grown up in the Soviet Union, but like, more important than that, she is a socialist who has attacked the U.S. for having a gender pay gap, saying that that did not exist in the USSR. There was no gender pay gap and how wonderful it was because everybody was equally poor there. So 
she came under fire. Uh, by the way, and it was not Republicans who killed her nomination. It was Democrats, Democrats. who wouldn't vote for, vote for her who caused Biden to pull it. So the, the New York Times writes as follows. Saul Omarova, a Cornell law professor whom President Biden picked for a key banking regulator job, is withdrawing from consideration for the post. Bank lobbyists and Republicans painted her as a communist because she was born in the Soviet Union. But then, uh, then here's her. And tweet. then there's absolutely no evidence in the article to say they painted her as a communist because she was born in the Soviet Union. They did paint her as a communist because she's a communist. Well, the the uh, here's here's her tweet that I I found that it was so delightfully uh, Soviet. Until I came to the U.S., I couldn't imagine that things like gender pay, like gender pay gap still existed in today's world. Say what you will about old USSR. There was no gender pay gap there. Market doesn't always quote no best. Uh, she tweeted in 2019 after Twitter users criticized her ignorance. She added a caveat. I never claim women and men were treated absolutely equally in every facet of Soviet life, but people's salaries were set by the state in a gender blind manner. And all women <laughs> got very generous maternity benefits. Both things are still a pipe dream in our society. Exclamation point. Close quote. This is the this is the rhetorical equivalent of, of what's his name? Michael Moore uh, sailing around Cuba in a motorboat with a, a megaphone asking if they can bring somebody ashore to get that good old Cuban healthcare that's available well, to everyone. And it, it's the rhetorical equivalent on the part of the New York Times of saying that Joseph Stalin, who critics attacked as you know a savage brutal dictator suggesting there's something inaccurate or untoward about these attacks is ridiculous and then they say they the article links to a wall street journal editorial it says it says that critics shared a wall street journal editorial suggesting that ms omarova's soviet childhood meant that she could not be trusted that's exactly uh, i pulled up yeah. i pulled up the wall street journal editorial okay here here's a paragraph Ms. Omarova thinks asset prices, pay scales, capital, and credit should be dictated by the federal government. In two papers, she has advocated expanding the Federal Reserve's mandate to include the price levels of systematically important financial assets, as well as worker wages. As they like to say at the modern university, from each according to her ability, to each according to her needs. Though basically the whole editorial cites papers she's written and things she said, and not the fact that through no fault of her own, she was born in a communist crap hole. Like a person who, for example, is going to be a bank regulator and uh, in a recent paper wrote that she, that she, the Federal Reserve should, quote, effectively end banking as we know it. You're like, maybe this was not a good choice. Maybe you erred. Yeah, uh, but really, it was all off the rail attacks from lobbyists and Republicans, even though, you know, they couldn't get the Democrats read, on board. If you read the article in a Yakov Smirnov accent, it's it's much better. In Soviet Russia, newspapers defend you. OK. OK, Chris, it is time for your favorite time of the week. Where I am supposed to say something nice, but you, of course, lead by example, even on this downer med i don't we don't uh, think of it as a okay. downer med we I don't think of it as a downer med it, it's 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 supposed to be soothing it's sedative yeah yes, it's okay. soothing so you go first i do have an item but it was hard for me to find one okay i have i have found the coverage of the how do we pronounce her first name Gislaine. 
Oh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Is that right? Yeah. Samantha's laughing at me. Samantha, how do how do you pronounce it? What? Ghislaine. I'm going with Ghislaine. I'm glad we have one cultured person around this podcast. Samantha Samantha can't save me. But anyway, Ghislaine Maxwell and her sex trafficking (laughs) trial. And two things that I would say. Many conspiracy theorists have said that people are covering up the story and they're not. It's gotten lots of great coverage. And no, the Omicron variant was not was not introduced uh, to the world. I assume you say by Fauci to to hide uh, the truth from the Ghislaine Maxwell. And as a matter of fact, there's been tons of great coverage. And I think it has been really good. I've been impressed by the fact that it's been hard hitting, not purient, not excessively purient. Oh, and also one other thing. This is actually a journalism thing, which is. There's been criticism of not sharing all of the lurid, every grisly component of this. No, absolutely not. The judge is is right here not to uh, succumb to the purient interests of people who are looking for clickbait and gross stuff. Uh, Okay, I have a counter to your point, very brief, which is that there was a Twitter account that had garnered half a million followers more 525,000 Maxwell trial tracker at uh-huh. tracker trial and Twitter has suspended this account. Okay. So that to me seems Fauci. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh? That to me seems just like something Anthony Fauci would do. Exactly. Exactly. The Omicron variant uh, is a fake. But certainly I think there's a desire to press suppress some of the information coming out of this trial, Yes, uh, at least by social media companies. I want to know all the dirty details, Chris. Damn it. I Look, uh, th- this is always the test between me as a citizen and me as a journalist. Uh, they're not usually in conflict, but sometimes they are. As a journalist, I want leaks. I want open. I want access. I want, you know, throw the gates wide open. But I understand as a citizen, as an American, there have to be limits and the court and the, and the as we saw. Okay. I, with, I don't want Twitter making the decision for me. Well, I mean, what do you mean? Twitter's not making the decision for you about whether the courtroom is open or not. No, no. But there, I, I want to see the tweets from this person's account. And yeah. I don't want them making the decision about how I should be a good citizen as opposed to, you know, good journalist. Well, I don't I, I, I don't tweet and I don't know what I don't know anything about this account. OK, well, that was an easy one for me. There you go. My favorite item of the week is a Wall Street Journal op ed by the Manhattan Institute scholar Raphael Mangual. I hope I'm pronouncing <laughs> that right. This is our day to butcher everyone's name. Yeah. Um, headline, yes, the crime wave is as bad as you think. And Mr. Mangwall, who uh, is an expert in crime and data and statistics on these things, points out how we heard for a long time that, yes, crime is spiking. OK, it might be up 25 percent this year over last or 20 percent, but it's still not as bad as the 1990s, as if like that means things are OK. They're not as bad as the 1990s. Right. And he points out we talked about this last week and I was actually basing it on a tweet thread of his that in major cities, which is where most Americans live, uh, no. you know, Louisville, Indianapolis. Yeah, majority of the population. Uh, the majority of the population lives either in the, most Americans live either in the suburbs or in the in the rural areas. OK, but I'm I'm 
assuming that like when they say Austin, Texas, that includes the suburbs of Austin, Texas, Louisville, Kentucky includes the suburbs of Louisville, Kentucky, St. Paul, Minnesota. Like I, I know that my address, I can put St. Paul in Minnesota and I live in a suburb technically, mm-hmm. Albuquerque, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It varies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, this statement is no longer true and we're not seeing real coverage that properly contextualizes the uptick in violent crime. Well, the, so I, I hats totally off agree. to him for that. And and the the obsession about look, I, I am be the first to say don't use un, unanchored statistics and don't compare the murder, uh, especially when you're talking about 2020 and 2021. A lot of weird stuff with the pandemic. So one year comparison is not good, and it's certainly helpful to point out uh, how how are things how have things been over the last 20 years. What do things look like? You want to reach back 30 years. You want to reach back 100 years. Great. Whatever you want to do to contextualize it, it's fine. But there has been a very obvious and it's not concerted. I think it happens on its own effort to downplay the real rise in crime. Uh, We've seen it here in the District of Columbia. Urban areas around the country have really been afflicted by this. And I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of. The, the fact that Trump ran on tough on crime, the fact that Republicans have embraced the issue, I think, has shaded a lot of this coverage. Chris, I have to go get dental surgery. So that is all the time we have left today. <laughs> that is the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. 